Easter Sunday has been one of the most sacred days in the Christian calendar for many centuries. Uh, There was no such thing as Easter Sunday in the first century church, which I think you probably know. Uh, Every Sunday was a celebration of the resurrection of Christ uh, because Jesus arose on the first day of the week. But within the first few centuries of church history, some church leaders decided to set aside a special day, one Sunday a year, to commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And since all of these events uh, took place right around the Jewish Passover, it was decided that this special Sunday uh, should be kept as close to Passover as possible. And of course, uh, we've, I've told you, some of you this, if you have been with us for a number of years, but the, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, meaning each new moon begins a new month. And so Passover was on the 14th day of the first month, so Passover would always fall at or near the full moon. So being that we have a, a solar calendar, what they decided to do to try to make Easter Sunday land fairly close to Passover, as Easter Sunday is now the, the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. If you got that figured out anyway, it's the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Uh, That's why Easter is a little bit different. It's usually in April, but once in a while at the end of March, but sometimes at the end of the month, sometimes at the beginning of the month. And the reason why it's different is because it's the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. And that keeps it very, very near to the Jewish Passover. And then, of course, very near to the actual time of Christ's death and resurrection. So while we honor and we commemorate the resurrection of Christ every Sunday, by meeting every Sunday, this is a special day for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And uh, we thank you for coming to Whitetail Baptist this morning to share it with us, those of you who are visiting with us. And I'm glad all of you regulars are here today, too. You better be here today, all you regulars. All right, so... One of the wonderful advantages to uh, have, having the Old Testament and the New Testament in one Bible is that they support each other. and Together they strengthen our faith in the truth of the Word of God. One of the wonderful uh, advantages of all of that is just what we can put the Old Testament and the New Testament together and, and it can totally strengthen our faith. And if you came from a Jewish background, your confidence in the Old Testament would be very strong and with, with good reason. And when you see the amazing fulfillments in the New Testament of, of, of the life and ministry of Christ, uh, all, all of those things that he was fulfilling in the Old Testament, the founding and unleashing of what we now call New Testament Christianity, your confidence in the New Testament should be made stronger. So even though none of the Old Testament writers and none of the New Testament writers actually knew each other, they're separated by hundreds of years of history. The Old Testament and the New Testament mesh together in amazing and wonderful ways. And as you study the New Testament, you discover that Jesus Christ himself totally embraced and endorsed the whole Old Testament as true and reliable scripture. Matthew 5.17, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So your confidence in the Old Testament grows because of the New Testament. 
And the roots of the life and ministry of Jesus are in the Old Testament, as, as God the Father was preparing everything for the entering of God the Son into the history of the world. So, as, uh, so the, the better you know the Old Testament, the, the more you will understand the meaning and purpose of the life of Jesus Christ and all that He came to fulfill in the eternal plan of God the Father. So I thought it might deepen our understanding and strengthen our faith if we would give our attention this Easter to the resurrection of Jesus as it was described in the Old Testament. Uh, we have preached many, many messages over the years. This is, I think, our 36th Easter or 35th or 36th Easter Sunday here, here in Hart Butte. And uh, uh, we have preached many times out of the Gospels, but we have looked, we looked a few years ago at some passages in the Old Testament. We're going to do it again today. Uh, I want you to see a, a, a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah that was written 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came. It is Isaiah chapter 53. If you want to have a Bible nearby, there may be one in the pew there as well, the black books that are in the pew there near the hymn books. Uh, you would love to have you turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Actually, we're going to read the last couple verses of chapter 52, uh, but we will uh, re- then read that in just a moment. It's an amazing prophecy about the Lord Jesus, His suffering, His death, His role as the Redeemer, as the Savior, and His resurrection. You know, the, the Bible teaching in all of this is that Christ's suffering was absolutely necessary. That He had to suffer. He had to die. And yet that idea by some has been scorned and mocked uh, by those who criticize and ridicule Christianity down through the centuries. But it is what sets biblical Christianity apart from all other faiths. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we firmly stand on this teaching and embrace the cross of Christ as being absolutely essential. It is the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to we who are being saved it is the power of God. You see, it is absolutely essential for Jesus to die in order to pay for our sins and in order to satisfy the wrath of God against our rebellion as sinners. It was the only way He could provide eternal life for us. And the the point of us taking our text from Isaiah 53 this morning is this, that this prophecy was not written by Christians after Christ's coming, trying to represent in some way what actually happened on Good Friday and Easter. This chapter was written by a Jewish prophet 700 years before Christ. And what he saw in the future by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was not a Messiah who somehow escapes death, but a Messiah who dies. And He dies specifically in the place of sinners. And then He rises again to make intercession for His redeemed and forgiven people forever. And intercession means means to, to go between, to mediate, to plead on behalf of someone. So let's go to Isaiah 53. Let's see the prophecy that the servant of the Lord, in fact, he's often referred to as the suffering servant, or the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, is going to die and rise again. And this death and resurrection was planned by God and was absolutely necessary. And as we look at this, I want you to keep in mind that this isn't just some historical event. This has to do with you and me, here and now, and for the rest of your life, and for all of eternity. What becomes clear from this chapter, 
and from its fulfillment in the New Testament is that our sins can be forgiven and we can have eternal life with the risen Christ in everlasting joy. And all of that was all prophesied in the Old Testament. I know you have your place there now. Look at chapter 52 and verse 13. Chapter 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. My servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the context that God is speaking, he's calling the Lord Jesus Christ his servant. He's going to deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage, meaning the look of his face, was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our reports, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I often mention these verses to you folks. If you're a Bible underliner, a Bible highlighter, may I encourage you to mark verse 6. It is the core Old Testament teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death. Because he has done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, I know that many of you, if you're not familiar with reading the Old Testament and you're not familiar, f familiar with reading prophetic passages, you look at those verses and you go, wow, what in the world was that? Well, hopefully we'll explain to you what was going on there. The first point I want to make with you is this. It was the plan of God for the Messiah to die. Jesus Christ did not come to this earth to live a nice moral life and be a role model for us. 
That was not the point. He didn't come to show us how to love people, although he did show us how to love people. But that was not the point. That Jesus Christ came to this earth specifically to die, to die young, to die a horrible, bloody death, and to do it on purpose, deliberately. It was the plan of God from eternity past for the Messiah to die. And the death of the Messiah was going to be a literal, physical death. Look at verse 8, it says right in the middle of the verse, He was cut off from the land of the living. Anytime you see that phrase throughout the Old Testament, it's a Hebrew phrase, means he was executed. He didn't just sort of get sick and die one day. He was cut off from the land of the living. Meaning he, he, was, he, was, he was executed. Not an accidental death, but a deliberate execution. It said he's going to be, he was going to be executed with wicked men, even though he was sinless and innocent. He said he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. They made his grave with the wicked, verse 9, and with the rich at his death, but he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Ironically, of course, he said he would, he would be buried with the rich, with the rich at his death. And we see, of course, from the Gospels that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very wealthy man, he gave a part of his family burial cave for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot more that we could say about that, but I want to focus now simply on the fact that the deliberate death of the Messiah was predicted very clearly. And down in verse 12, he said, right in the middle of the verse, he said, He poured out his soul unto death. And it was the plan of God for that to happen. It was not something that God cooked up at the last second, or the Lord Jesus Christ figured he better go do. No, he said he was, he, he was, he was planned to do that. He was cut off from the land of the living. He poured out his soul unto death. But why did he die? Why did he have to die? What was the point of all that? Well, you know, there are ten times in this chapter where we see a phrase that explains to us why the innocent, sinless Messiah would be executed with wicked men, even though he was sinless himself. We're going to let the words of the Scripture kind of have their own effect by just reading these phrases without really much comment. Look at verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. Verse 6, the last phrase, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, For the transgression of My people He was stricken. Verse 11, He will bear their iniquities. Verse 12 says, He bore the sin of many. You see, you've got our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, our peace, our healing, the iniquity of us all, the transgression of my people, their iniquities, the sin of many. See, it was, it was all about our desperate need for forgiveness. Have you ever wondered what is the essence of Christianity? What is the heart and the center of it all? It's, it's verse 5 and verse 6 of this chapter. 
way back in the Old Testament, 700 years before Jesus ever came, this would become the heart of the gospel message. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. By His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. We've all gone astray. Some of you have been listening to me preach for many years. Know I tell you a story every once in a while about the old sheep herder that I knew years ago, now deceased. But uh, we lived on a ranch where the, uh, where the ranch owners had a thousand sheep and they had a, a herder, a sheep herder, who lived with the sheep all year. About five months of the year they were on the place where we lived. Old Charlie was his name. I learned a lot of things from Charlie. One thing he told me that just this verse 6 just jumped out at me. He'd had his sheep dog out there chasing some sheep around and I was, I don't remember how we actually connected, but he was coming back to the sheep herder's wagon to have some lunch, I think, and I said, I see you using the sheepdog out there, Charlie. Yeah, oh, yeah. He said, you know, Larry, he said, you don't have to tell a sheep to get lost. He said, they just kind of do it natural. <laughs> he said, it's, it's, it's just their nature. They just, they just, they just kind of do it. And I thought, you know, what a great verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. You don't have to tell human beings to get messed up. We just, we just kind of do it. We just, we just kind of, it's just sort of natural. It's called our sin nature. We just kind of do it. We make dumb choices. We say foolish things. We rebel against God. It's called sin. You see, we, we turn away from God and we make ourselves our own master and our own treasure. It's like I value me so I do whatever I want. But see, God was not willing to leave us in this guilty, condemned condition. He planned from eternity past to send a suffering servant, not just to be a role model of love, but to bear our sins, to be our substitute on the cross. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ came into the world to fulfill that prophecy. Many others, hundreds of others, but this one is central and basic. He came to die, and He came to die in our place. He came to die for our sins. That's our only hope. And the New Testament is all about how this happened and how it affects our lives now and in the ages to come. So it was the plan of God for the Messiah to die for our sins. But what about the resurrection? Let's look at the resurrection of the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah. In these words written 700 years before it happened, there's three times at least that Isaiah tells us that the sacrifice the Savior made by dying would result in a victorious resurrection. Now he does not use the word resurrection, but the reality is very, is very plain there. First is in verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You say, wait a minute. He just made his soul an offering for sin. He just died. And yet it says he's going to see his seed. He's going to see his descendants. He's going to see his spiritual descendants. He's going to prolong his days. How can he prolong his days if he died? And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. The only way that, that, that the, the rest of that verse 10 could be fulfilled is if Jesus was alive. 
That's why he's going to see his spiritual descendants. That's why he's going to prolong his days. That's why the pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand. Because he has died for others as a substitute, he's going to live to see his spiritual offspring, those whom he has saved by dying for them. He's going to live for a long time, forever actually, going to prolong his days. And God's great purposes are going to triumph in his hand. You see, that's a picture of the Messiah who, who was dead and is alive and is victorious forever as the Lord of all who receive his salvation. And then verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. How's he going to see the labor of his soul if he's dead? But by his knowledge, or by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. How's he going to see the labor of his soul? If he's dead, he's not. How can he be satisfied by seeing the labor of his soul? If he's dead, he's got to be alive. Three results again from his dying for sinners. He sees the fruit of his death and he's satisfied. He justifies many, all who trust in him. And he will bear their iniquities. Yes, he bore those iniquities when he died. But verse 12, the second phrase there, it says he goes on to make intercession for them. He made intercession for the transgressors. And he can't make intercession if he's dead. He has to be alive in order to plead for us before God. So he is satisfied. We are justified. And all of our sins are carried by someone else forever. We will never bear them again. He is alive so that he can intercede for us. Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives to make intercession for us. And then finally, verse 12, God is speaking here. Therefore, because he poured out his soul unto death, he will divide the spoils with the strong. In other words, how can that possibly happen? After he pours himself out to death, then he lives to divide the spoils with the strong. Of course, dividing the spoils is a military term. Back in the ancient days of war, whoever won the battle would go through the battlefield and they'd take everything off of the dead soldiers that were there. They'd take their swords, they'd take their shields, they'd take their belts, they'd take their jewelry, they'd take their sandals, they would take everything of value. That was called the spoils of war. We use that term once in a while. And so he's going, he's going to divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul into death. You say, how can he do that if he's dead? He can't. He has to be alive. He lives to divide the spoils with the strong as though his death were a great triumph in war. So it couldn't possibly happen unless the Messiah who died is also raised from the dead. He could not reap the glory of his victorious death unless he was alive to do so. So 700 years before Christ was born, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah regarding the physical death and physical resurrection of the coming Messiah. So it was the plan of God for Christ to die on the cross in our place and be resurrected to live eternally. But I want you to look again at verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. But what is the Messiah going to be satisfied with? He said he'll see his seed, his spiritual offspring. And I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ's satisfaction in his death and his resurrection is going to be to look out 
on this massive assembly of people from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation who have trusted him and been forgiven and justified. And with tremendous joy, he is going to walk among those people now and forever. This is what he loves to do. This is the heartbeat of God. This is the heartbeat of our Savior. This is his satisfaction. He delights to save. He loves to bring people from death to life so they can enjoy his glories and sing his praises forever. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were studying in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. You know, there's a paragraph near the end of that chapter that begins with these words, see that you do not refuse him who speaks, meaning God. See that you do not refuse God who speaks. And then that same paragraph ends with the phrase, for our God is a consuming fire. An interesting paragraph, some great studies there. But it starts out by saying, don't refuse God when he's speaking to you. And it ends with, our God is a consuming fire. And the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is, you don't want to face God in judgment. Our God is a consuming fire. We're all aware of wildfires here in Montana. We've seen them. We've seen the destruction they leave behind. But do you know what the, where the safest place to be is in, if there's a wildfire in your area? You say, somewhere else? <laughs> yeah. But if you're here... And a wildfire comes through. Where's the safest place for you to be? Every firefighter, every wildland firefighter will tell you this. The safest place to be is in a place where the fire has already burned. Because after the fire has burned through, it's not coming back. And you see, one day Jesus Christ is going to return. But he's not going to return as the suffering servant. He is going to return as the conquering king. He's going to return in judgment. It's going to be like a wildfire sweeping the planet with the judgment of God upon the nations. The fire of God's judgment is going to be a scary place to be. But there is one safe place, and that is Jesus Christ. Because God the Father already poured out His wrath on God the Son on the cross. He was our substitute, and Jesus endured the fire of God's judgment. The fire has already burned through. And being in Jesus Christ is the only safe place to be. If we are not in Jesus Christ, then we will one day face the everlasting fire of God's judgment. It is finished. We just heard them sing. And we just, you folks just said, Jesus Christ paid it all. It is finished, as you so clearly read a couple moments ago. And that beautiful, beautiful song that we say, it is worthy. You know, in its scriptural context, the Lamb who was slain, the Lord Jesus Christ, is worthy to open the scrolls, to break the seal and open the scrolls, they sang. That's in Revelation 4 and 5. And the scroll that is being unrolled, the seals that are being broken, are God's judgments on this world. Jesus Christ is the only one worthy to open the scroll of judgment because he has already endured the wrath of God's judgment on the cross even though he was sinless and pure and holy. He has the right to open the scroll. 
As Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son, and he has granted him the authority to execute judgment. He is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And the reason why he's worthy is because he's 100% God and 100% man, and he lived a sinless life and was viciously and publicly murdered in a horrifying manner. But by voluntarily enduring this, the most horrible thing that ever happened became the most wonderful thing that ever happened. You see, the same God who planned Crucifixion Day also planned Resurrection Sunday. The world was not really out of control, although it seemed that way on Crucifixion Day. Darkness and evil was not really winning the day. Victory over sin and death and hell was all in the ultimate plan of God. So be careful how you interpret the events of your life. What looks like disaster may in fact be the grace of God. What looks like the end may actually be the beginning. What appears to be hopeless may be the hand of God bringing you real lasting hope. See, God can take disasters in your life and He can make them tools of His grace. And if you will repent of your sin and bow in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, He can take the most challenging things in your life and He can make them blessed tools of grace. We're going to close in just a moment. You'll all be headed to your home or to the home of a relative to enjoy your Easter dinner with family and friends. But before we go, I have to ask you again, do you belong to Jesus Christ? You can. You can belong to the family of the suffering servant, who is now the victorious Savior, the eternal intercessor. That is the whole point of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died in our place because He had to, because we're all sinners deserving of hell. And all who totally trust Him as their Savior and Lord of their lives can be forgiven and justified and can live forever with Him because Jesus Christ is alive today. This Easter Sunday of 2021, I plead with you to say no to everything that would pull you away from God and say yes to Jesus Christ because He is alive forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we certainly don't want to pretend that we are righteous and that we have some way that we can make ourselves worthy to You. We cannot do that. All we can do is bow in submission before Jesus Christ and admit that we've sinned and admit that we are sinners and admit that we do not deserve anything from You. But You on the cross gave Your all for us. As Isaiah said, 700 years before you ever came to this earth, you were going to pour out your soul unto death. You are going to bear the iniquities of many. The Lord has laid on you the iniquities of us all. The Lord, may we come to you for forgiveness. May we rest in you, we who know you as our Savior. May we rejoice that we know where we're headed. We don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear the troubles of this world. 
because we know the next world is awaiting for us and we can be rock solid certain with all of the security in the world, all of the security of heaven, that once you said you've forgiven us, you've done it. But Lord, we have to bow before you. We have to, we have to receive your forgiveness. We have to recognize our sin. We have to realize your holiness. We have to understand why you died, that it was for us. Lord, may we who know you as our Savior be strengthened and refreshed and built up and rejoice that we know that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And regardless of what happens in this world, we have eternity waiting for us with the Lord Jesus. Thank you again for these who are here today. I pray that the Spirit of God will do His work in each heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.